welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFBRL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Mark Boyavi. Uh, I'm going to get the first question uh, in, in uh, get to the first question in a bit of a roundabout way, so please bear with me. For several of the years that I worked as a journalist in Moscow before leaving in 2014, one of the big stories was the war in Syria and Russia's involvement, both militarily, uh, a role that grew uh, much larger in 2015, and diplomatically. Nowadays, Russia's war on Ukraine overshadows the situation in Syria, um, at least for some uh, people who, who study Russia and Ukraine, among them, I would say. Um, but there are similarities, including Russian bombings that kill and maim civilians. In any case, though, uh, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad came to Moscow last week and met with President Vladimir Putin. Uh, and indicated uh, that he would welcome a larger or more permanent Russian military presence in Syria. And today, uh, another leader who is deeply at odds with the West, uh, China's Xi Jinping, arrived in Moscow a, a few hours ago uh, for a three-day visit, I believe. Now, this is Xi's first visit to Russia since, since Russia launched the large-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. And it comes almost exactly 10 years after Xi actually made Moscow his first foreign destination as China's president. So that was a symbolic move uh, by him a decade ago. Uh, now, these, these two visits, I mean, Assad's and Xi's, seem to provide good reason for discussion of Russia's influence abroad uh, beyond the former Soviet Union in light of the war in Ukraine and Moscow's major confrontation with the West. And now there's a new twist, and what I would say one might assume to be a very important twist. Um, hours after the dates of Xi's trip uh, were announced on Friday, the International Criminal Court in The Hague announced that it has issued an arrest warrant for Putin for overseeing um, the illegal deportation and transfer of Ukrainian children to Russia. Um, now, Kiev and, and others use the word abduction, uh, for, for, for those transfers, um, you know, saying Russia is stealing our children. Now, so now Z is set to meet with a wanted man, an accused war criminal. Now, neither Russia nor China recognizes the International Criminal Court, um, nor for that matter does the United States uh, or Ukraine. So one view of the situation is that the warrant is mainly symbolic and will have little practical effect. On the other hand, again, Putin is now wanted on suspicion of war crimes. Uh, Mark, I, I would welcome your thoughts. What, what do Assad and Xi's visits say about Russian influence, including in non-Western regions, and, and, and what effect uh, could the ICC arrest warrant have on that influence, on Putin's standing and Russia's standing abroad? Okay, well, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, if we start very briefly with Assad, I mean, look, he clearly is in part there because he needs to ensure that Russia remains in Syria. The days when he was seriously at risk of being deposed by the civil war, the rebellions and such like are pretty much gone. But on the other hand, who knows quite what would happen were there not Russian jets of Maimim, not just as a kinetic force, but as a kind of sim political symbol of, of support. So although actually... 
he has survived long enough that it's quite striking that he's being brought back in out of the cold by many of the other Arab countries. Nonetheless, you know, he, he is there not so much because he anticipates that Russia will be expanding its footprint in Syria, but precisely because at a time when one could argue that every single plane and every single pilot is needed elsewhere, he doesn't want to, to see that go. And it's quite interesting because, again, that's very much about the fact that Russia can actively provide something useful. If we look generally at Russia's influence in what we probably should stop calling the former Soviet Union states, I mean, what's very striking is actually that in the past year, Russia's last remaining claims to some kind of hegemonic power have been disappearing. I mean, in, in Central Asia, you know, it's one thing to have supported Takayev in his feud with Nazarbayev in January of last year, but Takayev is clearly not proving to be a particularly uh, grateful uh, client. Quite the opposite. He's making it very clear that Kazakhstan will have an independent foreign policy. He's been very critical of Russian policy in Ukraine and, and so forth. So, you know, in Central Asia, it's very clear that a lot of Russia's authority was based on the fact that it was seen as a pretty effective and frankly reliable security guarantor whether it's with the 201st base in Tajikistan or other kind of commitments. Now, though, since it's clear that Russia really wouldn't be in a position to deploy forces, whether it's to repel jihadists coming out of Afghanistan or whatever else, they look elsewhere. Likewise, if one looks at the, the South Caucasus, I mean, Armenia at once, at one point put its faith in, in its alliance with, with Moscow. And clearly that alliance, even before February of last year, was proving to be pretty useless as Azerbaijan, with its Turkish backers, you know, hammered into Nagorno-Karabakh. So Armenia is also looking elsewhere. It's not necessarily making an open breach with Moscow, but it's certainly trying to make Europe much more central to its sort of negotiated settlement hopes with Azerbaijan. So generally, you, know, you, you now have a system in which actually Moscow is only really useful for Belarus. And even there, Lukashenko is able to very much define the terms of that relationship, and he's not sending his troops into Ukraine, thank you very much. So there has been this real diminution of Russia's authority, because essentially there has been a diminution of Russia's capacities. And in that context, if, if we look at China, well, look, I mean, I think... Yes, there's going to be a lot of rhetoric about, uh, you know, a new age in bilateral relations and this, that and the other. And China presented its so-called peace plan for Ukraine, which is really nothing more than a selection of bromides about how national sovereignty is a good thing and can, everyone should abandon Cold War mentalities. It doesn't actually offer any kind of a basis for any kind of constructive peace in Ukraine. But instead, this is about China asserting its position as a global player and a potential peace broker in the future. And I think she coming to Moscow really to look over his prospective new purchase. I mean, what we're actually seeing is the war is accelerating a process whereby Russia risks becoming a, a satellite of China's essentially in orbit of China's economy, because increasingly that's where Russia has to, to look. And the Chinese are not in any way being good allies in the sense that they're not being supportive. They're being very pragmatic and transactional. 
They're willing to let Russia launder some of its money through China. They're willing to buy heavily discounted Russian energy. They're even willing to turn a blind eye to a little bit of smuggling of small arms and drone parts and so forth, we've heard, via Turkey and the UAE. But it doesn't look likely that they're in any way willing to, to actually run the risk of, of sanctions by providing massive political, let alone military support for, for Russia. So again, I think all of this is actually a mark of Russia's isolation. But I should stress that it doesn't necessarily mean that the West therefore wins out. You know, if one looks at the global South generally, there is a relative lack of support for Western sanctions and generally this Western campaign. I mean, when, when one hears rhetoric about you know, the world being opposed to Russian aggression, well, actually, it's more the West in, in the global south, you much more get a kind of plague on both your houses kind of, of attitude. And there, in fact, Russian propaganda lines about this being an anti-colonial war. I mean, it's a ridiculous and toxic myth. The notion that actually Russia is pushing back against American hegemonic imperialism with the Americans using Ukraine to try and make Russia bend the knee. Um, well, I mean... That may well be absolute nonsense. It is. But nonetheless, for a whole load of countries whose experience of imperialism has been at the hands of the British or the French or the Germans or the Belgians, or who look at the impact of secondary sanctions today and think of that as American financial imperialism, well, this kind of message actually has a certain resonance. But again, it doesn't make people positive about Russia. It doesn't give Russia soft power. No one's therefore thinking as a result... Good gracious, yes, the Russian example is the one we should follow. It's just that, that they're not willing to be conscripted into the Western campaign. So I think this is, this is Russia's big problem. It, it, it's authority, its capacity to actually mobilize allies is incredibly limited. And in that context, look, if we can briefly talk about the, the ICC warrant against him. Look, I mean, it, it is in many ways a, a token gesture. I don't imagine that Putin is going to end up in a dock in The Hague. Those times when it's happened, it's really been in the context of a country collapsing. And I don't think Russia is going to collapse and his successors are not going to hand him over. And likewise, Putin was, you know, even at the best of times, not really one to, to, to go on, on, on long foreign holidays. He's not about to go backpacking through countries that recognise ICC warrants. So, you know, it's... It's a symbolic mark of disapprobation for, look, I have no doubts at all that Putin is indeed a war criminal. My concern, though, is that actually in some ways it might make peace harder. I mean, if, if one looks at you know, some of the positive welcome that the warrant has, has received in some quarters, it's precisely because it makes Putin more of a pariah, which to a degree it does. Um, it's more of an embarrassment than anything else, but it, it, it does make it harder to even contemplate sort of return to a, anything like a kind of status quo ante. And that might actually mean that Putin has fewer reasons at some point in the future to um, basically be willing to, to, to make some kind of a peace. I mean, who knows quite what's going to happen. I mean, essentially, it will be events on the battlefield that really determine that. But my big concern is that this may be a step forward for justice, but possibly not one for pragmatism.
Right, I see. Um, I guess I, one way of putting it would be uh, that, uh, you know, Putin, a lot of people say Putin's not looking, you know, people say, give him an off-ramp. No, he's not looking for one. Uh, in this case, you know, this kind of removes or, or further removes the, the, the possibility of an off-ramp should he be pushed uh, by by the situation on the battlefield uh, to to kind of uh, to, to need one, I guess. Um, uh, interesting what you said about, you know, Russia is not the fact that um, countries in the global south and, and others are not, you know, are, are, are not receptive to, to the Western uh, you know, version, I guess, of, of what's happening in Ukraine. But that, that does not mean that they are, you know, uh, going to turn to Russia as, as a model. For a while, several years ago, Russia was really pushing the Kremlin and Peskov and Putin. They were really pushing the idea that that Russia is is an alternative model. And I, I mean, I guess they still are um, in many ways. Um, but it just, um, you know, it did seem quite hollow then. And and, and um, can you not hear me? Hi, uh, can you guys hear me? Sorry. Uh, yes, we can hear you. Oh, okay. Apologies. I'm not sure Mark was able to hear me um, recently, and he cut out for a bit for me. Um, but I'm just going to... Hi, I, 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 I can hear you now. Again, I, I don't know what, what what's going on with the connection. I, I didn't hear you before and just heard you again now. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I, I you cut out for me for a little bit too, so apologies to the listeners for, for this Um um, just going to have to push on and see, see how it works. Um, uh, so I'll just, I'm just going to follow up with a quick question, um, to Mark about, about C's visit, uh, you know, just given the fact that the, the ICC, uh, warrant was announced, I think literally hours after the dates of the visit were, were announced. Do, do you think that it gave China any pause or, or even, you know, was there discussion in China um, about, well, should we change anything? Um, that's just, I mean, obviously it's speculation, but um, I find it interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you also, it's speculation that really you'd need to ask a China specialist about rather, rather than me. All I can say is that, first of all, I saw no, no evidence of any kind of a, of a wobble. Um, and, and secondly, I, I don't see why, why there would. I mean, actually... You know, it's not that China is entirely heedless of international institutions and its international reputation. But on the other hand, there's very little evidence that it allows it to, it allows these things to in any way kind of define its policy options. OK, thanks very much for that. Um, and uh, let's move on to a somewhat different uh, topic more uh, inside Russia for the most part, uh, although, of course, um, Wagner is fighting in Ukraine. Uh, Wagner mercenaries are fighting and, and dying in large numbers in Ukraine. So the, this topic in two words is Yevgeny Prigozhin. Uh, his Wagner group mercenaries have been heavily involved uh, in the very long and so far unsuccessful Russian effort to seize the city of Bakhmut in the Donbass, the Donetsk region. Uh, and for a time in recent months, um, Prigozhin had seemed to be very confident, um, taking on the defense ministry, defense minister Sergei Shoigu, 
in, and the governor of St. Petersburg, Alexander Beglov, and that's, of course, Putin's hometown, um, in, in a very kind of uh, vocal way. And this is you know, this figure who for years was kind of a mystery and rarely spoke publicly, became very talkative um, and, and sort of bellicose um, in what I would call a revolting way, I mean, subjectively speaking, in a way that kind of exemplified for me uh, Russia at this really terrible time. But more recently, uh, Prigozhin's fortunes seem to have dimmed, I would say. Um, uh, I liked a turn of phrase you had in the Spectator article um, about, uh, about uh, Prigozhin um, last week. Uh, you wrote, the real currency in Russia is not the ruble, but influence and impunity. So my question, I'll put my question this way, Mark. Is Prigozhin losing the influence and impunity that he had, or if he had it? And, and what does this mean more broadly for Russia and the war in Ukraine? Yeah, I certainly think he's seriously un under pressure. Um, I mean, I think he, he began talking loudly because in some ways by that point he had nothing to lose in that his tissue-thin deniability that Wagner was really an instrument of the state had been thoroughly sort of ripped through. And he had everything to gain because this way he could prosecute his vendettas, which seems to be the closest thing to a hobby that he has, and also the chance loudly to proclaim his value. But I think this is, this is for him, is, I think, is, is the big problem, is that I don't think he fully appreciated the degree to which his real value to the Kremlin is, is in, in exactly in his utility. You know, he is not in any way a Putin crony or otherwise who has a kind of a personal relationship. Yes, Putin has known him for a long time, but it's always been at arm's length. Prigozhin's role has been basically one of the um, second-ranked businessmen, let's say the minigarchs, to whom the Kremlin outsources certain roles from time to time. And Prigozhin has done very well by doing whatever the Kremlin wants done, whether it's setting up and running uh, troll farms at the time of the 2016 American elections, or whether it's, as in this case, running mercenaries. But the point is, anyone could do this, or if not anyone, but you know, if, if Prigozhin ever got to be too much of a problem, he could be arrested just like that, and there would be some Prigozhin-alike figure who could easily fill that role. So I, I don't think he really appreciated the degree to which he has to constantly earn his value. And in that context, you know, what, is, what is it that earns his value? It's obviously his troops, Wagner. Now, this is basic economics. It's the law of supply and demand. Last year, the big problem for the Russian military was precisely a lack of troops. That you had a still essentially peacetime, non-mobilized army fighting a fully mobilized Ukrainian army. And in that situation, you know, I mean, we had these ridiculous situations where, you know, armored personnel carriers were, were being driven in without actually the infantry that they were meant to carry. In that context, clearly someone who had maybe up to 30,000 troops that he could put into the field suddenly had a very valuable asset. And I think this gave Prigozhin an exaggerated sense of his, his indispensability. And this is when, after all, he was calling out not just Bigwov, but also in particular Shoigu. I can come on to him in a moment. The thing was that then the defense ministry and Shoigu managed to convince Putin to bring about a partial mobilization. Suddenly you have 300,000 
uh, mobilized reservists available. And again, supply and demand, the value of Wagner diminishes. In order to basically re-recruit, Prigozhin turns to the Russian prison system, raises again some very poor quality troops that are largely used you know, as, I wouldn't say human ammunition, but pretty damn close to that. And that has a certain value to, to, to the regular military. But again, you know, th- th- this is not uh, an infinitely refuelable uh, asset. It, it has some value to the battlefield. It probably has some value to ease prison overcrowding in Russia. But on the other hand, it, it doesn't change things around. His, his value was diminishing the point at which those mobilized reservists started to become available. And that also made him vulnerable. And this is really the, the tale of Shoigu's revenge. Shoigu, for a long time, just basically sat and took the abuse that Prigozhin and the various mill bloggers that he bankrolled were throwing at him. In part because, well, Shoigu didn't really have a strong position to, to push back against, but also because I think he appreciated that his role was in many ways to be Vladimir Putin's flak vest the person to soak up all the criticism about the, how the war was going so badly so that people didn't start thinking the logical point, which is, well, hang on, this actually is the responsibility not of the, of the defence minister, but really of the commander-in-chief, one Vladimir Vladimirovich. So, I mean, I think in that context he kept quiet, but also it's because this is how Shoigu operates. And I think what people often forget is, you know, Shoigu is a political, you know, he's the longest, arguably the longest-running serious political operator in Russia. I mean, he predates Putin's political career. This is a man who is a very subtle and effective operator. And one of the key characteristics of Shoigu is that you very rarely see, shall you say, the political workings. You know, for example, I can't think of him having campaigned for any of the senior positions he's ended up getting. It's just that things just suddenly happen. And I think this is exactly what, what we had, that, that Shoigu seemed to be just simply taking all, all this abuse and was clearly working behind the scenes. And suddenly, Prigozhin has found not just that Shoigu is pushing back, but that he's no longer able to recruit from prisons because of the defence ministry, that the FSB is looking to a whole variety of the businesses within his Concord business group, and that uh, Putin himself went and had a very sort of high-profile uh, photo op with Beglov, which is in some ways a sort of symbolic keep-your-hands-off-the-governor-of-St-Petersburg thing. So suddenly thing, things have gone, gone badly for, for Prigozhin, because, again, I, I just think he didn't realise that when you're riding high, you can indeed fall off the horse. In terms of the effects on, on the war, I mean... I don't think it's going to have, uh, you know, Wagner's decline and certainly Prigozhin's problems are not likely to have a major impact. I mean, Prigozhin might talk about, well, my troops could, could pull away from the front line. But in, in practice, to do that would essentially to be a, a, a traitor. And I, I don't think Prigozhin would, would survive that politically, economically, and maybe even physically. However, I think what this really does show is the debilitating effect of the fragmentation of Russian command and control. We look at Prigozhin and his Wagner force as a particularly egregious example. But if you see the forces that the Russians are deploying, there's the regular military. There are notionally incorporated into the regular military, but the sort of armed forces of the um, two so-called People's Republics, Lukansk and Donetsk. We have the National Guard. 
we have the Chechen Kadyrovtsi, we have some smaller uh, private military companies and the like, and, and various other sort of weird and not so wonderful groupings. And, you know, Gerasimov, the Chief of General Staff Gerasimov's appointment as overall military commander doesn't seem to have done a great deal to actually bring proper coordination there. So in, in, in some ways, I think that Prigozhin is in some ways a, a symptom of how the Putin system works, the constant competition, the constant rivalries, the essentially cannibalistic politics, and why this is actually quite dysfunctional, rather than that he's going to have a major impact on the war or anything else himself. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, that's 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 fascinating analysis on, on particular for me on the on sort of what it what it means and and, and Prigozhin as a symbol. Um, okay, uh, let's uh, running a little short on time, but let's turn to to questions. Um, I do see we have a question that's come in. And this is from Stephen Jones, um, and it, I guess it relates to what you what you called uh, Shoigu's role as as a flak jacket for Putin, and also perhaps um, to the the idea of the question of whether whether Putin might ever um, be sent to the Hague. Uh, the question is uh, whether you, Mark, are surprised by the fact that the Russian military has not yet acted against the Putin clique or clique, uh, that is running the Kremlin, given the extent of Russian losses in Ukraine? I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised for a variety of reasons. You've got a very strong culture within the military of not getting involved in politics. You have also massive organizational structures in order to ensure that the military don't start thinking coup-like thoughts, particularly the FSB's military counterintelligence department, which is not really counterintelligence, it's really counter-coup. But you also have the Federal Protection Service and, and others. You have the fact that, uh, that you know, in some ways, the, the military is pretty much is, is, is pretty busy at, at the moment. And how, even if people are unhappy with the war, how do you actually bring a coup together? I mean, it, it involves a lot of conversations, a lot of sounding people out. In some ways, this is much the same conversation as one could have about other aspects of, of the Russian state. That given the one bit that, that Putin absolutely still does seem to control and is still loyal to him, maybe because they have no real alternative, is the security apparatus. Well, in that context, it's really very difficult in the middle of a war to organize something against him. I mean, maybe what they should have done is snatched him when he was in Mariupol over the weekend. But they, they missed that opportunity. But I think ultimately, look, there is a certain loamy gut level patriotism that kicks in. And not just for Russians, but, but you know, in, in, in so many other countries. Um, we should never underestimate human beings' capacity to absorb losses so long as they feel that he's somehow in in the name of, of their nation and their community. And I think the evidence is that although on one level, I think a lot of people, even within the military, they realize it was a stupid war. It shouldn't have been launched. But once it has been launched, well, you'd rather win it than lose it. I think things will have to get a lot worse before you actually have any significant risk of some kind of pushback from the military. 
The only situation in which I, I think that the, the military may well be an interesting factor is if we get some kind of serious systemic challenge to Putin from another direction. I don't think the military will initiate anything. But if, on the other hand, we have, I don't know, protests in the streets and the National Guard in two minds about whether to actually suppress them or whatever, that's the point when potentially the military or elements within the military might feel, well, now is our time to move. But we're nowhere near that kind of situation now. Thanks, Mark. And I guess maybe there's a, a parallel with the 1991 coup in terms of, you know, the military playing a role, but but sort of maybe only after, um, you know, after other factors had, had, had kicked in. But I may, be, I may be oversimplifying or getting that wrong. Um, and and I do I would just sort of add to what you said about um, you, you think things would have to get get much worse uh, for Russia for the Russian you know war uh, effort. Um, of course, the visit to by Putin to Mariupol, you know, this is a city that Russia has destroyed, largely Russian speaking. Um, in the past, city that Russia has destroyed, you know, killing many people. We don't know how many. Um, and, you know, it's just a, a huge symbol. They, they bombed the, the theater where hundreds of people were sheltering, bombed maternity hospitals. You know, for, for many people, it's a symbol of, you know, the horror and the, and the, you know, the, the, the criminality of this war. Um, you know, but for, for, for Putin um, and, and, and I guess for state TV, you know, he's, he's traveling to a, a, a part of, you know, what they're calling Russia that, that, that they've taken. And uh, he's... He's there, um, I guess. Uh, so you know th that's kind of, and and he has said in, in his in one of his very few kind of statements about about uh, gains or, or achievements in the war. Putin said a while ago that you know basically we've got this land bridge to Crimea or we control the Azov seashore. So you know that's something that he's he's uh, describing as as, as a, a victory. Um, so, you know, uh, so I, yeah, I definitely take your point that um, things might have to get a lot worse for, for, for something big to happen there. Yeah, also, if I can just tack in on that, That's I mean, the, it's the point is there's also, there's obviously there's the perception that we have and there's the perception that is being pushed on Russian state media. And if one thinks of Mariupol, I mean, there the resonances, according to the propaganda that the Kremlin puts out, is not to, again, the, the, the sort of ghastly atrocities that took place there, but rather to the sense of reconstruction. Um, and again, I think that that's something that in some ways Putin had lost, and he's trying desperately, perhaps thinking about the you know, elections that will be taking place next year, to, to regain, is that sense of, of Putin as someone who, who makes things work again. You know, this was, after all, his big appeal in his early two terms, after the 1990s and the chaos and the anarchy, Putin's the man who actually got things back up and running. Well, you know, perversely, I think that's what he's trying to get at with things like his, his trip to Mariupol and before that to Crimea. Um, and I think, you know, from, from the point of view of ordinary Russians, I think it's likely that that works actually a lot better than the earlier attempts to have Putin as the war leader. Because that doesn't that simply draws attention to the fact that the war is not going so well. So instead, we, we, we now once again might well have a return to Putin, the man who 
takes somewhere devastated and makes it work. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, and I'll just add one more thing um, along those lines. I guess I believe there was an announcement in the past few days by Russia that the capital of the Zaporizhia region um, is now Melitopol in the eyes of Russia. Melitopol is a city um, on the shore that, that or near the shore that the that Russia controls. Russia has not controlled at any point uh, this, the city, this, the, the regional capital, Zaporizhia. So, you know, perhaps that fits into the idea of here's Putin you know, uh, kind of visiting places that Russia says it's rebuilding, you know, and, and that these are these are places that um, that Russia plans to hold, whether they take more territory or not, and they'll deal with that in the future. Um, okay, and and. Uh, Go back to see one more question, at least that's come in. Um, this is from Cameron Lancaster. Question is, Mark, any thoughts about both Poland and Slovakia sending jets to Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that uh, we're, we're once again getting this sort of conversation about jets, but not about S-16s, which are sort of were being held up as the sort of the, the, the magic wonder weapon. Um, but so far, actually, just about repurposed, re, uh, generally sort of genned up versions of Soviet era aircraft that Ukrainian pilots already have a pretty good facility with. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm not convinced that, that air power is, is as crucial as, as some people make out. Look, I mean, I, I think there are others who have much better sense of they sort of do detailed defense wonkery. But but my sense is that, in fact, Russia still has considerable air defense capability that it hasn't really been using, and it could use much, much more. And in that context, there is an element of tokenism. There is an element of wanting just to sort of throw in something more to, to present yourself as being a leader. Um, but I, I think it's more not about uh, identifying new weapon systems to provide, but ensuring that we can continue to keep up the pace. I mean, I think, frankly, more ammunition is going to be absolutely crucial. Planes, they may, may, they may make a slight difference, but they're not going to be war winners. A lack of ammunition could absolutely be a war loser. So I, I said, I, I mean, my... I have no strong feelings about it, but my fear is that it could actually distract attention from the rather more humdrum, but rather more crucial logistical issues at work. Okay, thanks very much. Um, uh, see if we have any more questions. Um, that was the last one that I see having uh, come in, but perhaps there are more there's a question, okay, and I think this will be the last, um, from Caprilea. What do you expect from Z's visit to Moscow today and tomorrow? Worst and best scenario? Huh. Um, well, I'll start with the most likely, which is warm words and not much else. Um, worst case scenario, well, I suppose it depends right for whom, but let, let's assume it's for us and, 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 and for Ukraine. I mean, worst case scenario is that, that China does indeed decide to deepen its practical cooperation with Russia, 
moves beyond a little bit of quiet provision of dual use uh, technologies, things that uh, are notionally civilian but can have a military role, and actually start saying, fine, yes, we're going to send you attack drones and all the other things on your shopping list. I think that's highly unlikely because that basically brings China right in. And, you know, I think that the Chinese wouldn't do so unless they were absolutely certain that they would be joining the winning side and that they could uh, easily absorb the uh, economic costs, which absolutely inevitably would, would follow. So, I mean, that, that would be the nightmare scenario, but I think we can probably sleep relatively calmly. Um, the best case scenario from our point of view would be that actually the Chinese kind of, okay, I think they, they would do it quietly behind closed doors, but lay down the law and say, look, actually, th this war is not working for us. And you need to basically bring it to an end soon, whether that means just, you know, either you sort of try and fix what you've got now or you negotiate your way out. Again, though, I, I regard that as monstrously unlikely. I think this is one of those cases where the sort of the the, the, the outlying examples are, are, are pretty implausible because, I mean, it's, it's clear that the Chinese are delighted to be able to reap what benefits they can. And I think there is an element in which they regard this as a win-win scenario in that, look, if, if the Russians get something that they can spin as a win, then the West will almost certainly fall back into a welter of recrimination. And if, as is rather more likely, they can't claim anything that is near a triumph, then actually Russia simply spirals closer into to, to, Russia, to China's orbit. So I think from their point of view, why on earth would they do anything? They have to do the minimum to keep the Russians on the hook, to demonstrate that they're not completely feckless allies. I mean, there's this, this friendship without limits that, that Xi and Putin announced has also turned out to be pretty much a friendship without benefits. So you know, they have to do something. But I think I don't think they're going to move beyond warm words, thoughts, and prayers. All right, thanks very much. Friendship without benefits, and, and I have always noted that no limits, you know, also, you know, can mean if there's if there's a, a ceiling of one hundred, something can also be at zero or one. So, <laughs> no limits may not be very meaningful. So apologies, I did say that would be the last question, but I'm going to allow one more. Um, so Piotr K, can you um, you can ask your question, please? Uh, hi, Steve, you've had me on before. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting um, about the uh, visit for the next three days. Uh, I did just have a, a follow up on that and then a slightly a different question, but um, what do you think, um, Mark, about the, um, the, the the fact that there are limitations to the Russian-Chinese relationship? We're constantly focusing on how uh, limitless it seems to be. But, I mean, the Russians and the Chinese have this increasing border concern. Putin even made explicit reference to it in a summit of uh, democracies or autocracies, as I call it, uh, late in 2021. Um, so where do you see those limitations? I, I think it's something that people on the... Kremlin side seem to never really like to acknowledge, even though I, I think that there are some pretty glaring uh, obstacles to this relationship, which is primarily strategical convenience. And then the second question is just more broadly, um, since Twitter's obviously been uh, acquired by Musk, um, pro-Kremlin sentiments have become a lot more just 
well, wide spread. Um, and there seems to be a fundamental disconnect between people who are pro-Ukraine stating that, you know, the Russians are absolutely jacking it with 800 deaths a day or so, for example. And then on the other side, you've got Kremlinites who are basically stating that, you know, whilst everybody's focusing on Bakhmut, pro-Ukrainians are focusing on uh, the, you know, Putin's supposed visit to Mariupol uh, and stating that we don't want to admit that the Ukrainians are actually losing. So why do you think that there's such a fundamental dis- disconnect between the two sides, even when it's glaringly obvious one is so wrong and the other one isn't, if that makes sense? Yeah, well, I mean, to start with with China, look, the Russo-Chinese relationship has always been incredibly pragmatic and transactional. However, they also know that sort of it becomes, again, something of a nightmare for the West, the thought of there being some tight, close political strategic axis between Moscow and Beijing, the Dragon Bear Alliance and such like. So they play that up because they know absolutely that that's the point at which people pay attention. I mean, I, I always love this about the, um, the last iteration of the Vostok military exercises, which included a sort of an element of Chinese participation. And that got all the headlines. Chinese now doing joint exercises with the Russians. Turned out that actually the Chinese participation was, was pretty minimal. It was a very small force that was kept in one small part of the, of the uh, overall operation that the Chinese were not allowed into the strategic level command post exercise, and that since the Chinese weren't involved in the naval component of the manoeuvres, they sent a spy ship to sort of trail along behind and, 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 and watch. You know, that doesn't exactly sound like the allies of your, you know, the, the activities of your bosom buddy allies. So, I mean, I, I think this has always been overplayed. I mean, even if you just look at the, the energy deals, yes, China is still buying Russian energy, but it's doing so because the Russians are offering them a, you know, a, a desperate uh, discounted price. So, yeah, this, this is something that is, that is less than, than, than meets the eye. In terms of the sort of narrative, I mean, I, I confess, and I, I, I don't know what, what it says about me and whether, whether I'm just simply insufficiently attentive. I mean, I haven't noticed my particular Twitter feed becoming suddenly overrun with, 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 with pro-Russian trolls or, or similarly. I think it's more than just simply social media. Uh, and I'm very conscious that we're saying this on, on a Twitter space, is, is basically a kind of cesspool of um, half-informed, but uh, makes up for being less informed by being more partisan opinion-forming. Um, and this, this is a conflict that, after all, on one level, allows for very little real nuance. You know, this is clearly a war of aggression by sort of imperialist Russian figure who cannot get his head around the thought that Ukraine may be a rightly sovereign nation. Um, and in some ways, therefore, that in itself generates more partisan discussion because there is, you know, there is no room really for, 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 for two perspectives on that. But it's also that actually we still, we know a hell of a lot about certain aspects of the conflict and very little about others. I mean, if one takes an example, there was a recent you know, case in which you had the New York Times presenting a very kind of um, triumphalist, upbeat notion about why Ukraine is winning. And at the same time, the Washington Post providing a pretty well-researched story that didn't say that Russia was winning, but certainly sort of highlighted the degree to which actually Ukraine was suffering very heavy casualties as a result. 
Now, the point is that we need to understand both aspects of this story. I, I actually am I'm willing to believe, and certainly I've had people within the British Ministry of Defence sort of suggesting that, in fact, that Washington Post figures, which would more or less suggest that proportionate to overall population, Ukrainian losses would double those of the Russians, I mean, 120,000 to the Russians, 200,000. Um, but nonetheless, we need to know this information but social media often isn't really a space for knowledge. It is a space for opinion. He said, as someone who actively participates in social media himself, I think this is, um, unfortunately, this is just simply the, the nature of the modern world. Oh, I can agree. I've got a degree of masochism about myself as well. But thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Uh, great questions and great answers. Um, let's, let's wrap it up here. Mark, uh, thanks very much for joining me again. My pleasure. All right. Once again, I have been speaking to Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London, and the author of books including We Need to Talk About Putin, The Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. And my name is Steve Gutterman, uh, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be back next Monday for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia, and please keep an eye out um, for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which comes out almost every Friday. Thanks for listening.